Before we start the episode this week, just want to let you know that Anselm, our usual sound mixer and editor, uh, wasn't able to be here for the recording, which meant that uh, the duties for two of our mics fell to me, Tom. Uh, I totally screwed up. You and failed this time. I, I did. And uh, so basically the first part of this episode, you can totally hear us and our guest Brian, but there's a bit of an echo and reverb to it. Um, and then after a little while, we stopped recording and, and started up again with uh, with our mics. So please forgive me. I'm sorry, but uh, enjoy. Hey, I'm Matt. I'm Chad. I'm Tyler. We're Radio Silence. I'm Tom, and this is The Crawl. Everybody, welcome to the podcast. This week we had a really great conversation with our friend and independent producer Brian Witten. He is also a former studio executive, uh, spent some time at New Line and also Paramount, and was responsible for some pretty great movies, including Final Destination, American History X. What are, what other ones? Wedding Singer, Dark City, Friday the Thirteenth reboot, Friday the Thirteenth. So a whole bunch of good ones, and he had a really great inside look into how those movies got made. Hope you enjoy the episode. You told me you started as a PA. Yeah, the I was a PA. I was I was actually a, an office runner on this a movie called The Horror Show that Sean Cunningham, who did Friday the Thirteenth, right. produced. You run the horror show. Mm-hmm. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Brian looks like he's eighteen, but he's really like seventy-four. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I remember because I loved Friday the Thirteenth, and when I came out to LA from. Uh, New Jersey, I just look for, try to get jobs with people, I, movies I liked. Like, I liked Sean Cunningham because he produced Friday the 13th. And then I kept calling his office and they kept saying they don't have any, nothing, nothing, nothing available. And she, he had a, a British assistant. And then she finally, I forgot her name, she said, well, we have an office runner position. I'm like, yes, done. <laughs> and I went and became a PA and I would run things at the set. And then I remember the coolest thing was, um, the actress in the horror show was Dee Dee Pfeiffer, who was like Michelle Pfeiffer's younger sister, or I don't remember where. And I got to drive her to a sushi restaurant that Michelle Pfeiffer, her sister, owned. And I was like, yes! This is Hollywood! <laughs> right? I was so, so innocent. How old were you? Very early. Like, uh, I graduated in like 83 or something. Right on. Yeah. Like, I graduated at NYU and then six months later moved out here. What, did you did you study film at NYU? Yeah. Okay, so that was like you came out here to to chase the, yeah. the big fucking dream. I had, <laughs> I mean, I had. Should we go back to? Like, yeah, let's go back. Yeah. I had, I had, I went to NYU for film, but I had loved RoboCop, like, uh, and so I reached out to the. I wanted to be a director, and I loved Paul Verhoeven. I went and watched his other movies; were phenomenal. Because did you guys ever see Paul Verhoeven's other movies? Who directed? Prior to RoboCop, it would have been like his European stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like he did right. this great movie with Rucker Howard called Soldier of Orange and Spetters, and uh, I can't remember them all, but they were like really way, way, very character-driven and dramatic stories. And um, 
And then he did RoboCop. But, but so I loved about RoboCop was it was a sci-fi movie, but it had really great characters and themes to it. Right. And so I wanted to be a director, and then I reached out to the producer, who was John Davison, and I just made phone calls to Ryan Pictures. The switchboard gave me his office number, and I called him, left a message, and then uh, he called me back, and I missed his call, but then I started to not like directing, and I was like, ah, I should call this guy. He produced RoboCop, and then I saw that he produced uh, Airplane. And I forgot how I found that out, because there was no internet, but I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um... I called the guy, and he was from New Jersey, a neighboring town uh, where I lived. He went to NYU, and he said, uh, come meet with me when you come out to L.A., and I'll hook you up with um, two of his classmates, uh, Joe Dante and Mike Finnell. And Joe had just uh, directed um, Gremlins at the time, and Mike was his producing partner, and they had a deal at Amblin. And so I graduated NYU like in an August, and in October I came out and met John, and then I went... And we hit it off, and he was developing RoboCop too, and um, and I just would hang out in his office and talk about comic books and stuff, and then he hooked me up with Joe Dante and Mike Finnell, and Joe was directing Tom Hanks movie The Burbs. Oh yeah. And yeah. so I remember driving onto the set at Universal, like I'd never been on a s stages before, like yeah, outside, and you're mind blown. And you know, you guys know what it's like. Yeah. You, those fake streets, and yeah. I was like, "Holy shit, this is yeah. wild!" <laughs> and there's Tom Hanks, and I'm um, meeting him, and Joe Dante, the guy that did Gremlins, and The Howling was one of my favorite movies oh, as a kid. Fuck yeah. And Piranha. Yeah. And Piranha. Piranha. Yeah. <laughs> Piranha. Yeah. Classic. And this is all just from you making calls? Oh, call, yeah. This does not happen anymore, people. Like, <laughs> you can't call anybody. It's like not yeah. a viable option for a career it's not I don't know, it might be. It is for Brian. Dude, you just call. Like, yeah. What do you have to yeah. lose if you just yeah. call? I mean, I remember when I went to Emily, I called. I tried getting Spielberg on the phone. <laughs> oh, my I God. I love Walter Hill because I had loved the Warriors, and yeah. um, he obviously wrote Alien. I tried getting Ridley Scott. All my favorite filmmakers or producers, I just would call, like... That's amazing. And some would call back. The only ones that, that I was able to get in touch with were uh, Wes Craven. So I met with Wes. I got in touch with, um, what was the producer? Keith Barish, who was this huge producer at the time. He had done like Running Man, and I can't remember all of his tentpole movies. But I never got to meet with him, but we he called me back. Um, Spielberg, I... I Still waiting on wrote, that callback. Never... <laughs> <laughs> But I, I wrote a... They, his assistant said, write him a letter. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be clever and write my letter to him in screenplay format. Like, because that would be different than <laughs> just writing a, yeah. a yeah. courier font yeah. on my dot matrix printer. Yeah. And so I wrote him in screenplay format and I get a letter back saying, I apologize. We apologize. We can't read unsolicited material, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I'm like, I called the assistant back. And he goes, this is not a submission. I just wrote a letter. A letter. I was trying to be clever, and it was not a script submission. But I figured you had nothing to lose. Just try to get anyone on the phone. That's amazing. And it worked. I mean, you it did. Then you I got came out here, and you, you like, how, so how long were you in LA before you got that first PA job? What happened was, met with. John Davison then hung out on the you know the set of the Burbs and met them and they said we could help you get a job but you can't be in New Jersey we can't help you from New Jersey so that was like October I then moved out in February and um, what happened was John said he would hire me on RoboCop two but it was during the writer strike of 1988 which lasted a long time and so he didn't have money to hire me because Orion wasn't paying for pre production on RoboCop two.
because of the strike. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'll have fun. And then I started. And then two months into having fun and waiting, my parents were like, you got to get a job. And so I applied for jobs at video store. I couldn't get any job. And then that's where I, um, I, I called Sean Cunningham and they ended up hiring me uh, on the horror show as an office PA. And did, so, did you did you PA did you PA for a while after that? I mean, I know certainly like the PAs. I mean, I I started as a PA and I had I PA'd, I don't know five or six things before I kind of got in with the camera department and it became something something else. But I think typically like that's sort of typical. Like yeah, it's PA, a good one. I PA'd PA, once. PA, it was then, fun, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, once. it was fun. I PA'd once. It was for a, a movie called The Machine with Michael Madsen oh. that Warren. Oh right now I remember Warren that. produced. Um, one of our friends that we met in acting class. It was just cool. It was one day. Just went in, kicked it, and you know, made sure Michael Madsen had water, and that was that was about about, about it. Yeah, it's, it's just a very right. unique point of view of how the whole thing works, and to get that like access. Totally. Like, yeah. When, when I went to NYU, I PA'd on movies, and I learned more PAing than, I mean, than being in school. And I remember my friends were like, "Well, you're PAing like." And yeah, but you're hands-on, you're there. It was great. Yeah. Like, I, I, I peed on a, a movie of the week, and uh, I was doing it for free. I didn't care. And then the second AD, or no, it was a DGA trainee, whoever, he would, like, pay me each day out of petty cash because he thought I did a great job. But I remember my first brush with whatever was, um, it was a movie with Sophia Loren was in it, and so the stand-in for the main actor opposite her was in makeup or something, and I happened to be the same height, and they were lighting. So Sophia Loren was across like, from me. This. They used me to light Sophia Loren because I was the same same height as the actor. And But the cooler thing was the DP was this guy, Stephen Poster, who shot the... Oh, yeah. um, he shot uh, the the footage at the end of Blade Runner, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he shot some other stuff for Ridley, and so from me doing this one scene, I became friends with Stephen Poster, got his phone number, and then I forgot how many months later he came back and he was shooting someone to watch over me with for Ridley, and I would go and hang out on the set, and I met Ridley Scott all from this one PA thing. And Ridley, when I went to NYU, was my god, and I just m- remember being mesmerized watching him direct. What a crazy... It was crazy. Oh, I absolutely. think the PA route is uh, 100% great advice, though, because everybody needs to know what happens yeah. on the set oh, yeah. and how it works and how there are no small parts because every single thing goes into the process and into the machine, and every role right. there is important. And Especially being a PA. Need, think yeah. about when a PA is late or something and everybody right. loses their mind. Right. <laughs> And, you, and yeah. you learn and see what depart. Like I remember learning about departments. I didn't, you know, I knew what a DP was, but then there's gaffers and grips. And then from meeting the, the, the DP, then I became friends with one of the gaffers who ran the, this, you know, post house that had all the lighting equipment, right. so that I could go to them, you know, later when I was doing a short film, whatever. But you learn all the what goes on on a set, which at, at a film school they don't teach you that. None yeah, of it. None of it. There's this like people want to get into that position and out of it as quick as possible, but it's like being in that position and being just a sponge and soaking up a piece of every part of the process is really the most valuable way to start yeah, 100%. any any pursuit in, in this, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, totally. Because you see what goes behind actually making the movie, which right. 
you just see different points of view. And also having a genuine interest in learning, I think that that's where, you know, if you're, if you're like, it, there's, there's a difference between, between being eager and interested and being sort of like political, like sort of obnoxiously political, and it sounds like you were just genuinely interested in learning about every facet of it, and you make friends, you make friends that way, I mean, you, you know, and you meet your mentors, ultimately. Totally, and if you're, P, if, as long as you're not, like, not doing your, I mean, in hindsight, as long as you're not doing your job, I mean, as long as you're doing your job, but, like, you could hang around and, like, like I loved listening to Ridley Direct, like, it was amazing, and you just are there, I mean, I was not peeing on that movie, but... But I've PA'd on other movies where listening to the director talk about the scene and what's going on and then the DP figuring out the blocking. Those weren't, again, things that I learned in film school. So it was, it was really invaluable. You learn a lot about how to communicate with yeah. people because everybody on a film set is an artist. And I feel like a lot of people think that certain positions are technical. But like if you ask a gaffer what they do, they're not going to say, Absolutely. I light the scene. They're going to have some sort of really intimate answer for you and then like you're going to see how the dp talks to them they're not going to say just put this light up there and not listen if the gaffer says well here's a thought that i've had right and so on and so forth for every department uh right. whereas 100%. They, you're exactly right they don't teach it in school you mm -hmm. just have to go there and you have to listen talking about how to speak with actors like don't tell the actor like say it like this do it better right right though and you watch like i, I also i hadn't thought about it till you, you were just saying that but um so while I was working, when I met on um, Someone to Watch Over, I met, I also met the camera operator. I forgot his name. But we were, I had loved The Hunger, which was a Tony Scott movie. Oh, yeah. And I, what was his name? I think the, 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 the camera operator was like this guy, Mike Stone. Like he was camera operator for like, what's his name? Michael Ballhaus. Like he worked on amazing movies and we were talking about uh, The Hunger. I don't know if you guys remember the movie, but there was this awesome scene where there they're uh, in the, um, whatever that facility is where he's going about his aging, and they're going down the corridor, and it's kind of, it's not so locked in, and I, I think as a student, I didn't know, somehow Mike, I think the same camera operator, did, shot, did it, and he told me that it was on like a cart with wheels on it, and he just sat on there on an apple box, and they just pulled him to give it that kind of thing, but going to NYU, they, no one really taught you those things. Right. And I learned, I was like, oh, that's so cool and so mm -hmm. simple. Mm -hmm. Like, you could do your own low-grade version of it. All you need to do is, you know, like, there was that funny John Candy movie. What was it? Um, that there, one funny John Candy movie. There, there, <laughs> they, were, <laughs> they were filmmakers, and, they, and he's in a shopping cart, and Eugene Levy's pulling him, and he's got the camera, and he's right. lying back in a shopping cart to get the dolly track. It was... Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was very funny. It was him and Eugene Levy. No, I mean, I, what I remember from film school is there was, like, you're taught that there's a sort of right and wrong way of doing things. Yeah. And the only right way of doing anything is that it gets done, it gets done to the, like, to the best, in its best version, regardless of how you ultimately, <laughs> ultimately end up achieving that. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's, th and those are just things that you learn when the rubber meets the road, yeah. like when you're actually on set trying to make something and trying to make it cool i mean just this is creative problem solving too it's just yeah. like you're figuring out ways to do it i remember one like our early early stuff one of my favorite shots was we're trying to get a dolly shot in the new line parking garage and we didn't know how to do it we were doing the short call cops and robbers and we're running around a corner and what we ended up doing was putting jonah in the trunk of your car and then 
just somebody driving <laughs> driving the awesome, car yeah. and we're like running behind it. It was like one of the cooler shots of the show. But that's awesome. Yeah. You you figured out figured how, out how to done. get it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then we took that with us moving forward. Right. So how do you go then from I mean obviously wanting you know starting as as wanting to direct then finding yourself into a PA position and then ultimately finding your finding your way into into producing. Like I mean which I would say just with my my kind of understanding of it is one of the more ambiguous jobs. It's not, and maybe because it doesn't, you don't actually see the craft of it. It's because when you're on set, the producing has happened to get everyone to that, to that point. So how do you, how did you fall? How did you find yourself on that path specifically? Well, when I went to NYU and I wanted to be a director, then I started directing and I didn't really like it and then in one of my classes I had to produce someone's because they make you do different mm -hmm. positions so I produced and I liked that and so while I was going to NYU I realized I, I'm not a good writer I like producing I know how to make phone calls yeah I know how to make phone calls <laughs> and so then I just started getting in like I liked producing and then that's how I, I got into it but I but but so then I became a PA and then I worked for John on Robocop 2 I was his assistant so we were we shot that in Houston, and I was there for, in Houston for like nine months in a hotel. I mean, we were like four months, three months of prep, three months of shooting, and so I just went from being his assistant and learning, you know, making deals. I had never. Then we, I remember, oh, but what, one of the no, just because we're all I, I'm looking around and hear all this sci-fi stuff, and we all like that. But so I remember our line producer was making a deal with a DP, and he lived in, in, in Britain, the DP, and we were gonna shoot it over some holidays, and so the wife, who was his manager, wanted like two round trip tickets, so that she could come back and forth, and our guy would only give one. And my boss was out of town, and I'm like, even at that time, I was like, wait, for five fucking grand, you're gonna blow off Adrian Biddle? And then we hired a guy who, he, you know, he shot like the fly Mark Irwin, a lovely man, but he didn't have, I mean, just what I knew, didn't have that visceral energy of like an right. Adrian mm -hmm. Biddle, that muscular like cinematography that RoboCop 2 could have used because, and so, but I, I remember you just learn all those things and see how you would, you know. Right, and it's something ultimately that seems that feels so seemingly small can actually have a huge impact oh my God. On, the, on the quality of of the finished product, whatever it is. And you just pick up all that. And then, so then I worked for John and then he was like, he would make one movie at a time. He didn't have a deal anywhere. And I'd always loved Joel Silver. I loved those movies, his movies. And um, from, again, we were talking about relationships. I had wanted, uh, I saw, I forgot the name of his movie, but um, Stephen Hopkins had done this cool Australian movie and he was finishing post on one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, but he was in the running for to direct RoboCop 2. It was him, Catherine Bigelow, and Irvin Kirshner. And um, Catherine had done, um, oh my God, what's the done Near Dark? Near, Near Dark, Dark, which yeah. was awesome, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so um, Orion didn't want her to do it, so it was down to like Stephen and Irvin Kirshner, 
And um, they went with Irvin because he had done it before, and it was when Orion was having some sort of issues financially, and they wanted someone that they knew would deliver something. And Irvin is famous for having directed Empire Strikes Back. Yes. I feel like that was sort of his exact calling card film. But so I'm telling you this too in too much detail, probably, but... No, it's great. We're going to cut it all. Cut oh. it all. <laughs> <laughs> I needed a job, and I love Joel Silver. It so happened that Stephen Hopkins' agent... Uh, oh, no, sorry. Stephen was directing Predator 2, the agent of Steven had always liked me because I supported getting his director the gig that he didn't have. And then Mark Goldblatt, who was this amazing editor who'd worked on Robocop and he went on to do big Jim Cameron movies, movies and tons of stuff. stuff yeah. He was the editor who I knew from John working on Robocop 2, was the editor of Predator 2. So I like had this perfect storm of people that helped get me into Joel's door. And then I became uh, Joel's uh, partner's assistant, this guy Michael Levy. And that sort of took my way, and that was just crazy five years of, you know, everything you saw on Swimming with Sharks kind of stuff, so. <laughs> you, swimming, swimming with Sharks? You said that that movie is loosely based on Joel Silver? Well, it's, it's based on, <laughs> it's based on uh, Joel Silver, Barry Josephson, who was a vice president at, at uh, Silver Pictures when I was there, but then he went on to be the president of, of uh, Sony Pictures, and um, Scott Rudin. So it was all, but you know, from taken from different, different right. people. But George, when I when I was at Joel Silver's company and I worked for Michael Levy, who was his, the president of the company, George was Barry Josephson's uh, assistant, and Barry was the vice president of Silver Pictures. So uh, it all was inspired by. You were in the middle of that. Middle, like. Like so, George and George and I, uh, right. George and I are like great friends. We're good friends, and he, yeah, a lot of that was, you know, I could tell you the things in it that were true. That were like there was a, we had an assistant whose name was Spike. So what happened was I started getting Joel into Hong Kong movies before anyone else in Hollywood. Like I got into John Woo and The Killer and uh, Better Tomorrow and Jet Li, and so. Joel then started to like me, and so I would go do Joel stuff, and so there were, like, kids. So then Michael would be mad that Joel would take me out and do things and not, because I was his. Yeah, you were, like, a child in the middle of a divorce. Totally. <laughs> and so we hired another assistant that would, because he was, Michael was getting mad that I was not answering the phones enough. Because if Joel told me to do something... He was my, boss. He was, like, head, I would head do it, and show. Michael's phones would go unanswered, and Michael would get pissed. Or I wouldn't be returning calls from Michael because no one in Hollywood returns their own calls. They have an assistant place the call. <laughs> and you go, hi, I have Michael Levy calling. And um, then they get on the phone. So no one was helping him. So we hired another assistant. And his name was Michael. And his nickname was Spike Selden. And in Swimming with Sharks, the guy says, oh, his name is Spike. What is that, a dog's name? Like Spike. Who names their kid Spike? And, like, Michael used to say that, like, Spike, what kind of a name is that? A dog. Do they name you after a dog? But, like, there are things like that that were all true in the in the movie. And do you still cross paths with those guys now? I mean, uh, like, like Joel Silver, obviously, still, you know, making... making no, I, no. I, I... When I went to... The, I, when I left Joel, I hadn't... I didn't speak to him for probably, like, five years. And then when... Um, I uh, I was the executive on Spawn at New Line, and the movie opened. A, it was one of those movies where now August is a big date, but New Line found this niche to release movies in the first week in August or second week because studios weren't using August. And so Spawn, I think, opening weekend made like twenty two million dollars, twenty three, whatever it was. 
and I ran into Joel at Mr. Chow's, and he came over and hugged me like, you know, oh, look, you did well. And Right, my protege. Yeah. <laughs> Taught you everything. That's right it. And How then, did you transition from there to New Line? So I worked for Joel. Then I became Joel's assistant, and then we started getting into video games because I was really into video games, and I actually played them, and believe it or not, the Demo- Demolition Man, the movie, mm-hmm. we were the first video game. We were the first company that allowed a video game company to have full access to the set. And I became like the liaison with Virgin Games who was doing uh, their game. And we shot like Stallone, uh, Sylvester Stallone who was in uh, Demolition Man and Wesley Snipes. (laughs) We shot them on blue screen to use the video game. We were the first of its studio to ever, company to ever do that. And so I was going to run, we were going to start our own Silver Interactive and do video games. And then didn't, we couldn't close, oh, this is funny. So, <laughs> so we were doing a deal with Sega. And Sega was this huge company back in the 90s. They were like, I, I don't know, yeah, the yeah. Yeah. rock star. They were like huge. Yeah. Now they don't. Yeah, now yeah it was like Nintendo and Sega were the two yeah. players. So we, we had orchestrated, the, an agency that was working with us orchestrated a meeting with, I, I forgot the guy's name, who was the highest level at Sega to kind of bless this deal. We were going to be at Silver Interactive and do our own video games. And... And so I remember the guy was talking about what kind of games do you want to do? And Joel was telling the story, I want to do a game called Roadkill. And it would be about you're driving a car and just running over people. It was like, you know, um, Death Wish yeah. Death Wish 2000. And you run, you're like, you run over an old lady and you get points for that. And maybe you run over a kid and you get points for that. And this was before like R-rated crazy yeah. over the top. Like before game. Grand Theft Auto was even. So yeah. you did like, you mentioned what, what, Sonic. 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 Like right. Like right. family yeah, friendly is, stuff, yeah. and you could see the chairman of Sega. His face goes like, "Aha! Uh-huh. Like this is not something we're gonna do." And then it didn't happen. Didn't get the blessing. And then, but so what happened was, while I worked for Joel, there was this—he's not a kid anymore—but Rob Liefeld, who was a partner at Image Comics, he was in his twenties and was shoot. He became like the biggest comic book artist creator at that time or at least the biggest public guy like spike lee used him in a levi commercial he was on all the talk shows but in any case i had brought him in to meet joel and um so we were trying to get to see if rob had uh any uh you know any ideas to be movies and so this is when everyone in hollywood is trying to meet with rob and we became friends and then when i left joel Rob said, why don't you, you be my producing partner? And I said, great. Because he had set up, a, a, he had set up a, a movie at Amblin, which was Steven Spielberg's old company for people that don't know that. But um, um, a comic book called Dooms 4, which was kind of Rob's take on the Fantastic Four. And Spielberg loved Rob. Like he drew special art for Steven's kids because the kids liked it. And so he sold this thing. And I became Rob's producing partner. And we set up a, a movie at um, TriStar based on a comic of his called Profit. Then we set up a... Um, this was when um, Fox, a cartoon, whatever, and they had the X-Men. Right. And I think their license or something for the X-Men was running out. So they, we started developing Youngblood. Youngblood was another Rob comic book as a TV series. But so what happened, and you had mentioned to me earlier about writing comic books, so what happened with Rob was Rob could only pay me... Not, not, still an, an okay amount to be his producing partner, but not that much. So to compensate for that, he said, write comic books because I have a comic book company. 
I could pay you to write comic books and it's, you know, part of the cash flow for the company. And I was like, great, I grew up on comic books. So I got into writing comic books. And so I just remember I, you were allowed to write a comic book 22 to 25 pages. So I would always write it 25 pages because I made more money by writing 25 pages than 22. But it was the great, it was so much fun to write comic books because you'd write it and then a month, then you'd get the art from the artist. Right. And then a month later, you'd have this printed comic book with yeah, your like a story. much more immediate. It was great, gra- much more immediate gratification just in terms of oh, it was so from much the beginning fun. to the final finished product. Oh, it was great. How, how long did you do that? So I did that for probably I did that for about six months. And so how many comic books did you write? Like six different ones at different times. Part um, of other series or your own? No, they were all based on Rob's comic books. And some I would write with, with friends of mine that like comic books. So we'd team up and write like, there's this one character named Vogue that was this uh, Russian uh, gymnast assassin that I wrote with my friend Cy Voris, who is a screenwriter. And now he's a, a TV writer. But we wrote it for fun because he liked comic books. And so we did that. But uh, there were a bunch of different ones. But so But what happened was... Rob's business was comic books and he was making, as I mentioned to you guys, a lot of money writing comic books and drawing comic books and running his comic book business. And you guys know when you option, if you, if you option something to a studio, an option for underlying rights is like almost at the bottom of the list for contracts to be done. And you only make money when the contract is signed. So, Rob would sell something, and even though it was whatever that dollar amount was, which was still pretty good, it was good money, it would take a year or eight months before he would ever get paid. So if your business, your cash flow is relying upon you drawing, you're going to spend a lot of time doing that because you're not really getting paid there. And even though I was his producing partner, it was all about Rob and his vision, not me and my producing, whatever, you know. So... Things weren't moving that well, even though I was getting paid really well, and it was great. And then um, my friend, which who I mentioned before, this this uh, who was who became a producer, but Lloyd Segan, who was an agent who represented Stephen Hopkins, that I tried to get the job on RoboCop Two, who then helped me, Stephen. I mean, then Lloyd helped get me the job for Joel, you know Michael Levy working for Joel Silver. He called me and said, you know, this guy Michael DeLuca at New Line is looking for someone that loves comic books, sci-fi, and horror. You should meet with him. And, he, and Lloyd had had a, a producing deal at the studio. And, and when I worked for Joel, the studio was the enemy. They were like, "Right, you don't, you know. And so Lloyd said, go take a meeting. Just take a meeting and my, at the time, I mean, now she's my ex-wife, but my, girl, my, my ex-wife had said, you should go meet. What's, what, what does it hurt meeting with someone? And they both were right. And I went in and met with Mike, and Mike was the total opposite of anyone at Warner Brothers. Mike was, his office was filled with, he was 28, I was 28, his office was filled with comic books. He had a Mortal Kombat, you know, arcade game in his office, one of those real, you know, real ones that that were in arcades. Old school. Yeah. Yeah. And my entire meeting with him was talking about comic books, and we dorked it out on, are you guys Spider-Man fans? or? Mm -hmm. So we were dor- we were talking about Spider-Man 120 and 121. 120 is the death of the uh, Gwen Stacy, and 121 is the death of the Green Goblin. And we were talking about like as kids reading those, where if you died, you were dead in the comic book. Green Gland- Green 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 Goblin 
didn't come back for many years later. But um, and then he said, "Okay, you're hired." Oh, and they were doing Spawn. I walked out of his office, and instead of walking in like not giving a shit, I walked out. By the time I walked from his office to the elevators, I'm like, "Fuck! I got to make sure I get this job now," because he was the coolest guy. Right. And then that's how I started working at New Line. Right on. But he was like, it was a very, it was a great place. And how long, how long from, from the time you had your first PA gig until that opportunity crossed your path? How long had you been working in film? So I worked for Joel. So it was two, five, seven years till I, be, I worked at New Line. Right. But so I, I worked for New Line from 95 to 2000. Oh, right on. Yeah. So I, the, the first thing Michael gave me as an executive was um, Mortal Kombat 2 to develop that and Spawn. And those were, oh, and and then I had to develop, uh, not I had to, but Freddy versus Jason was those projects. And then, then I just started. the The beauty of New Line is, even though I was a, a director, as you guys know, there's a hierarchy at studios, at a lot of studios. So I started as a director of development and then became a senior vice president. But when at New Line, unlike other studios, if you wanted, if you liked something, you would just. Get DeLuca to read it, and if DeLuca liked it, he'd go, okay, let's go do it. There was no real hierarchy. So if you were an executive vice president, a senior vice president, a vice president, a director of development... Everyone had the same level of access. To DeLuca. It wasn't like... When I was at Paramount, if you were a creative executive, you'd have to go to a senior whoever, a, a president or vice president, whoever, get them to like your idea, and then the two of you could go somewhere else. And so, like the first, I think the first, the first thing I ever, well, I bought I bought a book, but the first big thing I ever bought was the uh, Wedding Singer pitch, and that was Sandler came in and pitched, you know, pitched it, and we bought it in the room, and then then you know then I did you know, Dark City with Alex Proyas, and um, Final Destination was a project I oversaw, and and um, Little Nicky with Sandler, and then I, um, American History X. Um, yeah. So it sounds like I mean, so, so you had the experience of of working in the kind of nuts and bolts and math of what a production is, right? Like as an assistant, you saw how to, you know, how to how to balance money and you know the creative process. Orange juice, coffee, water. <laughs> yeah, bagels. Bagels. Totally. <laughs> bagels. But but then it sounds like at this at this new line job, I mean, you're really working creatively. I mean, oh, there, yeah. obviously, there's that component as well, the sort of business, money, line-producing side, but you're working on developing creative concepts. So then how, how, does, somebody, how does somebody at that level, at the studio, what's, what, is that, what does that look like? Like, how does that, how do you, how do you interact with the content? How do you, what do you, what's your sort of process in developing it and getting it ready, essentially, to, to shoot? Well, from, if you're going back to the inception, it's finding something that you, you're, you're excited about. But I think like the first book, the first thing I bought was uh, 180, I forgot about this. It was a book, a manuscript called 180 Seconds at Willow Park. And it was a really cool heist movie. I couldn't tell you what, I don't remember what the book was now. But at, at the, I thought it would be great for Rennie Harlan. Rennie had done Die Hard 2 and he was doing our movie um, Long Kiss Goodnight. And I loved the book and said we should buy it. So then DeLuca let me buy it and we developed it for Rennie. But I liked, it was the material. I liked the concept, the heist movie. It was a really cool heist movie and I was a fan of Rennie's. So I thought that would be good. But they're all different. Like the wedding singer, when Sandler came in and pitched it to 
to Michael DeLuca and I, it was a wet. The, the concept was he's a wedding singer. He gets jilted at the at the altar. He goes on a cruise ship. He becomes a cruise ship wedding singer, and then Julia Guglia is on. She's getting married on the cruise ship, and I don't I don't remember the what happened. And so that was the there was more to it than that. But but the notion was that Sandler had done like um, Happy Gilmore and uh, Billy, Billy Madison, yeah. and he wanted to take that and elevate it a little bit more make it a little more sophisticated and he was a big singer like Sandler loved singing so he wanted to use his singing right. in the character of the wedding singer and he grew up in the 80s so that was the concept and then so you're asking my interaction was we bought it we said yes then he went off to write uh, a script we then I got the script read the script give notes and then you just have meetings to talk with them about the script and then at some point I don't remember in the process of fixing of working on the script I would just go over to Sandler's house and they would I would hang out with them at night and they'd show me script pages we'd all collaborate even though I was the executive collaborate and throw ideas into the mix so you work with them on developing it through its various stages of development I mean I guess that that's probably I'm sure that that still happens now but that feels like the exception and not the rule to have to have like and as you had said you know and and it sounds like as Joel Silver was saying like the studio they're the bad guys they're the ones who want to take whatever is kind of cool and creative and just turn it into some some marketing thing that like checks checks yes. well the new line of that era is so specifically the opposite of that. right well, totally new line of that era we were a, a place where it was v- incredibly collaborative and that's the the thing about our interaction with any filmmaker or writer or producer is it was a collaborative thing. And I think that's why they kind of gave us executive producer credits on movies, which right. I don't get at, at Paramount, but it was, it was more collaborative or that's, it, there was more of a transparency between studio and filmmaker where everyone's like sets out to make the same thing. Yeah. Instead of it being this weird territorial process where, Everyone is trying to do something, a, a, a different version of the same. Exactly. Same. And we all, the thing is, we all, from at the level of DeLuca down, we were on the filmmaker's side to get what was best. I mean, obviously, there's always, not always, but there'll be disagreements along so how, the process. So, so at Newland, though, were there, were you guys having, were you ever having conversations about how viable something was going to be? theatrically like in in the market or was it more like hey we believe in this shit if we make it great and we make it right it will find it will find an audience because it feels like things sort of culturally in the business have flipped where now the only things that are getting made are the things that have this kind of mega mega viability a superhero i believe is what you're talking about yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) and and the thing and like the, the you know the smaller more sort of intimate you know creator driven things are ultimately like finding more of a more of an indie space um i mean was well, like, would magnolia ever get made by a studio now never no i mean no one would have made boogie nights but right. deluca well, i mean deluca read it he loved it because it was about a, a, a kind of a dysfunctional family set in the porn world and the, and i you know i don't want to speak for him but i think he grew up in a family that wasn't so functional and and it was a little and and so he but he saw he liked this idea of this dysfunctional family that all they happen to be in the porn business but they come together 
I mean, that's ultimately, they're all family, right? Oh, for right. sure, definitely. And so he loved it, and he had loved Paul's uh, other movie. Was it Heart 8? Heart 8. Heart Heart eight. Yeah. And so you're right. He, he was like, we're going to make this. We'll figure out a way to make it. It wasn't, oh, in the marketplace, it wasn't reverse engineering. It was like, we're going to make it. I like it. Let's figure out how to make it. Now, the filmmaker might want $15 million and when we run our numbers, it could only be made for, I don't remember what we made it for. It wasn't that much, but it only makes sense at eight. So can we make, it makes sense at eight. At eight, we'll make it. And, and, then, and then you figure it out. So. Like, God, it sounds like such an I mean. Is anything well, similar like, to that nowadays? Like, does, any way to get a movie financed that way? No, I, I don't think so. I don't want to speak for. Right. I, don't, I don't know, but they don't. In you Europe. Know. No, you know where? Yeah. Probably like someone like Megan, Me, Megan Ellison, right, Megan, like Anna Megan, Megan, kind of thing. Who yeah. is making Paul Anderson's films now? Like right. Someone like that, or um, what's her name, Molly Smith, does that too. Right. People that I think more financiers that have money. Right. And they go, we love this. We're going to figure out how to get it made. It will find its audience. Obviously, they're not going to go into it to lose money, but. Sometimes if you if you break even, whatever. Right. We we like the, the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so funny because like New Line then, and I mean even New Line now, but like there was something about it that felt special then because you knew it was making those movies. Like when I applied for my job, it was literally, I remember them asking like, why do you want to work here? And I was like, well, because Nightmare on Elm Street was my favorite movie as a kid. Pump Up the Volume was my second favorite movie. And then I just saw Final Destination and I was like, oh, we're nailing it. Like this is the, this is where I want to work. I don't want to work anywhere else. And then I got the job and it was like, this is just a fantastic environment. And it's funny because like, so then that being my first experience down here was like, oh, cool, this is fantastic. <laughs> and then it instantly disappeared like within a year. And since then, it's it's like, I, I feel like I know I've always kind of been searching for that. I remember talking to people at New Line at the time who were like, who would come from Orion and were like, we had that at Orion. And then that disappeared. And then we found it again, never thought we would. So I've always wondered that for the people who went from Orion to New Line, is there a new line to something else? And maybe not. I don't know. I, what changed? Lord of the Rings changed new line, right? Wasn't that where it all... Yeah, the Luca yeah. leaving was the kind of like... Okay. But there were, I mean, there were other, like the Final D franchise continued to be successful for a while, but I, I do well, wonder how much... successful now. Yeah. I mean, new lines. Well, yeah. Like but, Sex in the City, Lord of the Rings. But, but before, I mean, it, before it, you know, became, was it became a part of of Warner Wars. Brothers. Yeah, it's now yeah. like a part of that That was like 2000 was maybe? 2001? What... I no expert. What I think happened was New Line's making these certain movies at a certain level and doing well. It's all making it's making money. Then they get into Lord of the Rings. So all of a sudden, I have I have no idea what the profit was, but they go from I'll use a generic number like zero. The Lord of the Rings makes what a bazillion dollars, and they're at a ten. So now Warner Brothers is like, oh my god, look, New Line's making every ten. They're making all this money. So now New Line has to continually hit those thresholds. Right. So, But they're fine because they have more Lord of the Rings. So they're still at that high threshold. But then when Lord of the Rings goes away and they don't have those huge billion dollar, two billion dollar grossing franchises, their profits go down and then they have to reorganize and come. They, I mean, they... I think they tried to stay at that level and it didn't work. No, I mean they had movies like The Golden Compass yeah, and Son of the Mask, and they were they were trying to build another big franchise, which I think ultimately sort of. But but it wasn't like the beauty of New Line was yeah. it wasn't it was built on Bob Shea seeing that Reefer Madness this right. movie right he got I don't know how he got the 
the, the rights to distribute it. And he built a company on, I love this movie, I can reach an audience, let's go. And he knew to go to a specific audience. It was like college tours and yeah. stuff like that, where you're like, find the great movie, find its audience, let exactly. them work it out. Whereas, you know, I went to Paramount after New Line for five years, and at New Line, back to what you were, you were saying, Tyler, Tyler, but but is um, at New Line we found reasons to make movies. At Paramount we found reasons not to make movies, right. and they became more. You know, you have to do bigger things and broader things. Broader. Ultimately, right? It's like how do you make? How do you take this idea that's really amazing in its most pure form and make that accessible to more people? And uh, automatically, you're, I think, in some ways, compromising what what that well, idea then, originally. And then that dovetails right into when you make something broad, it becomes less personal, which means it actually becomes less broad because who wants to watch something that's impersonal? Yes. Right. In, in New Line, like, not to keep, but, but so in New Line, I, the be- again, not, part of the beauty of New Line is, so we made, uh, we released a dubbed version of Jackie Chan's Rumble in the, Rumble in the Bronx. That's such an awesome Made movie. a lot, did incredibly well. And then we did, um, was it was it money money talks where Chris Tucker mm-hmm. was in it? Chris popped off money talks. We saw that Jackie did really well. There was this script called right. Rush Hour that was never, from what I recall, it wasn't my project, but it was not a, supposed to be an Asian, you know, black guy. It wasn't that wasn't the intent of it. It was it was like going to be I don't know who. And then Deluca's like, let's put those two together. Right. They're both they're great in this world. He's great. Let's put them together and we'll do uh, Rush Hour, which is such a such Sorry, an awesome. Right. Whereas. And and when I met with when I in, in Clarity, when I met with Sherry Lansing, who was the chairman at Paramount, when they were trying to get me to go to Paramount from New Line, and John Goldwyn, they basically said we would not have made the Wedding Singer off of Happy Gilmore with Adam Sandler. After Wedding Singer, we would have made a movie with him, and likewise with like Chris Tucker. Right. They would never at Paramount had gone. Oh, Money Talks. Uh, Rumble in the Bronx. Let's go make a it's team taking up. that chance, and but it's like trusting that they want a sure bet. And New Line was willing to take take a chance. Yeah. After Rush Hour, they would make the movies a movie with Chris Tucker and, and Jackie Chan. But before Rush Hour, right. it's the whole it's the whole thing of like we want that last hit, and you're like, well, that last hit worked because nobody had made it before. Exactly. You can't. It's you know, it's dog like chasing that, its tail. You the can't Deadpool do it. argument right now that seems to be right. And you're like, right. exactly. The exactly. R-rated superhero so thing right. won't work, and now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because in a way, it's very basic. It's something that feels fresh and new is the key. Like that's what we all want to watch. Yep. <laughs> and that's what nobody wants to make. And nobody wants to make it. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it's not proven. Right. Yeah. It's not. It's unpredictable. It's proven, and then it's too late. Right. Thanks for tuning in this week, guys. That's the first half of our interview with Brian. And we actually interviewed him and talked with him for so long that we decided to split this episode in two. So tune in next week when we talk a little bit more about his later career, some of his indie producing, including working with Oren Pelly of the Paranormal Activity franchise. They ended up working on the film Chernobyl Diaries together. And don't forget to visit our website, highradiosilence.com. And you can also find us on your favorite social media networks at High Radio Silence. Rate us, subscribe to us, share it with your friends, and we'll see you next week for the continuation of our interview with Brian Witten.